ministry he oftentimes engages in. There are many, many stories of him performing exorcisms, casting demons out of people who are demon-possessed. He does this time and time again. And there's one story in particular where he's confronted with a man who's demon-possessed and he is mute. He's unable to speak. And there's a crowd of people watching. And Jesus is able to cast the demon out of the man. And immediately afterwards, he is able to talk. And the crowds observe this and they are amazed at what they've seen. This mighty deed wrought by Jesus. But not everyone who witnesses the exorcism is pleased with what they see. And Luke doesn't tell us specifically who these people are, but we could probably guess that it's the scribes, the Pharisees, the official and unofficial authorities of the Jewish religion. Jesus was not the kind of Messiah that they were anticipating at all. He was not the kind of prophet that they wanted. For one thing, he didn't really have the right credentials, you could say. He was just the lowly son of a lowly carpenter. But worse than that, he didn't have the same zeal that they had for certain ancestral traditions, especially those associated with the Sabbath and with the kosher food laws, which for them were important boundary markers that separated the people of God from the pagan nations. And Jesus seemed to do what he was doing without reference to their authority, really. And whereas John the Baptist had the attitude of, he must increase and I must decrease... These particular authorities felt very threatened over the fact that Jesus was undermining their influence with the people. And so they wanted to discredit him, but they were up against a real problem. Because no one could deny that he had the power to cast out demons. No one tries to deny that he could or couldn't do it. So they couldn't go down that road. They had to find some other way of explaining how Jesus could do this without vindicating Him as a true prophet of God. And the way they decide to go about it is to say, well, the reason why Jesus is able to cast out demons is because He is in league with the prince of demons, Beelzebul. Beelzebul literally means Lord of the Flies, and it's a kind of derogatory nickname for Satan. And there were some other people who weren't willing to go that far, but they were still skeptical, and they were demanding that he give them a sign from heaven. Which is interesting to me, because you would think that the exorcisms themselves were a sign from heaven, even if it is true that Jesus was not the only exorcist, as this passage makes clear. 
But in response to that group of people that were trying to misrepresent him as being in league with the devil, what Jesus does, instead of responding in kind, just points out to them the total unreasonableness of the charge they're bringing against him. He says, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast demons, I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And this is almost certainly a reference to the Exodus story. Because you may or may not remember that some of the plagues that God brought against Egypt were plagues that Pharaoh's magicians were able to duplicate. And the implication is, if Pharaoh's magicians are able to duplicate these plagues, then after all, there's nothing all that special about them, right? But, finally, there comes a plague, the plague of gnats, that Pharaoh's magicians are not able to duplicate. And so, when they see that they can't do it, they come back to Pharaoh and they say, this is nothing other than the finger of God. In other words, that's the only explanation for how Moses and Aaron are able to do these things. It is the finger of God. And Jesus seems to be alluding to that when he says this in response to their misrepresentation, telling them, if I am casting out demons by the Holy Spirit, then the finger of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And many commentators have depicted this passage as giving us a picture of spiritual warfare, so to speak. The strong man is Satan, and the stronger man is Jesus Christ. And it's possible, we're not certain, that he could be referring to the temptation in the wilderness, you may remember that after Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness and he was tempted by the devil. And at that time, he won an initial victory over Satan in the wilderness. And since that time, he has been casting out demons, dividing Satan's possessions. And certainly, the language that Jesus uses invites a battle-like interpretation when he talks about the strong man being fully armed and guarding his castle. 
But at the same time, you don't get the impression that this is much of a fight. I want to bring that before our attention this morning, as if the outcome of this battle is somehow uncertain. I mean, I could try to wrestle Francis down to the ground this morning, but I don't think that I would get very far before he would just totally reduce me to begging for mercy. And that's the kind of impression I get when I hear this parable. It's the strong man comes in, he immediately subdues the weaker man, and then just takes his possessions and divides them. And though we do battle, I'm not trying to deny, we do battle against our flesh, against the world, and against the devil, but the outcome of history is not uncertain. We know that God wins. We know that God has already won. We know that Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He has overcome the world. He has overcome the devil. He has overcome death itself. So that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That's how the story ends. And we know this. So the only question that's left is whose side are we on? Jesus said, you are either with me or you are against me. Now, I can remember being a junior high-aged boy in Sunday school over at the Nazarene church. And one Sunday, our teacher was challenging us because he was apprehensive about our commitment to the Christian faith. And of course, when you're dealing with junior high boys, that's not really much of a stretch. At least he had good reason to be apprehensive in my own case. I don't know about the other boys in the class, but what he said to us was, it seems to me like a lot of you are sitting on the fence or straddling the fence. And though I know that some people might take exception to a Sunday school teacher challenging his students in this way, looking back on the episode myself, my only objection to what he was saying is that he suggested that there is such a thing as sitting on the fence. What Jesus does in this passage, and he does it oftentimes in the gospel, is something which is very politically incorrect. He presents people with two mutually exclusive alternatives. And then he has the audacity to say, you can't have it both ways. You have to pick one or the other. And there is no sitting on the fence. There is no middle ground and there is no neutral zone. Now, I think the church has done a good job of answering all the people in the world who have wanted to reduce Jesus to just being a human figure. And they are willing to concede that he was a wise teacher and that he lived an exemplary human life and that he did preach and die in ancient Palestine, but they don't want to take it any further than that. And the church has shown the weakness of that position, one of which is if Jesus was just a new age hippie telling people to love each other, he never would have been crucified. 
So I think for us, what we need to focus on more this morning is the danger that's within the household of God, so to speak, or within the walls of the church itself. Because I think there's a temptation, especially if we've been raised in the church or if we've been plugged into a Christian community for some time, to just assume that I must be with Jesus, I must be on His side, I must be gathering with Him because my doctrine is sound in reference to His person and His role in history. In other words, I know that Jesus is God's eternal, uncreated Son. I know He died on the cross for the sins of the world. And therefore, I'm with Him. And I certainly don't want anyone to get the impression that I'm mounting a fresh attack against doctrine and dogma, because it grieves me when I hear Christians do that. It is just pure, weak-mindedness. If it weren't for dogma, the church would have collapsed into Gnosticism, into Arianism, into any of the number of heresies that still flourish to this very day. It's doctrine and it's dogma that preserve the Christian faith. But I've never been Protestant enough to believe that theology saves anyone. And I've always thought that it's just silly to think that the only thing that separates believers from non-believers is theology. Because doctrine may be important, but to use a verse from James, doctrine without works is dead or an idol. And over the summer, my family and I went up to Napa, like we usually do, to visit a friend of mine, John DeBow, who's a pastor of a four-square church there in Napa. He's one of these dangerous Pentecostal types. But he is gracious enough to share his pulpit with me. And I preached there a couple Sundays. And on one Sunday after our service, we reconvened at his house for a baptism. He has a pool there on his property. And several people were baptized including some of his own grandchildren. So it was obviously a very, very special occasion. And then after the baptism, two of his grandchildren and a friend of theirs, all of them boys, went back into the house to play some video games. I mean, what better way is there to celebrate your conversion to the Christian faith? And one of the boys named Luke, he's a really special little guy, but he has mild autism. And so he's really had a difficult time developing his social skills. And like a lot of kids in his situation, he's oftentimes marginalized and excluded, even by the other grandkids. So John makes it clear, don't do that. They go into the house, they start playing video games, and sure enough... (laughs) It's not long before poor Luke is just being pushed to the margin once again, and he's being neglected. And John walks into the house, and he sees what's going on, and he got really upset, because he could see just this bold, incongruent behavior between what was going on and what was happening just a little earlier. 
And so he told those boys flat out, he said, look, you can get baptized and have a Jesus party, but if you're not going to live it out, it doesn't mean anything. And perhaps some people would say that he was taking it a little bit too far, but I don't. I mean, that really resonates with me. And Jesus said, strive to enter through the narrow door. And when we're trying to reconcile the grace of God with our free will, I think the best place in Scripture to go to is Paul's letter to the Philippians. You may or may not remember, but in the second chapter of that epistle, he offers them this paradox. And he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work. And like I said, it's a paradoxical saying. But the first half of that passage doesn't nullify the second half. And the second half does not nullify the first half. So that if I am tempted to exalt myself because I've done a good deed or because I've gone on a missions trip or because I've preached a sermon, if I'm tempted to be self-satisfied with my accomplishments, I need to be reminded it is God who works in us both to will and to work. It is nothing other than the power of the living God. But at the same time, if I'm tempted to make peace with the sin in my life, if I'm tempted to absolve myself of personal responsibility in the name of God's grace, I need to remember, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Both branches of that tree need to be planted in our hearts and in our minds if we're going to avoid the pitfalls of self-righteousness and unrepented sinfulness and apathy. And the Apostle John tells us, if we do sin, if I hurt my neighbor, if I break a promise, if I succumb to selfishness or greed or lust, we have an advocate or an encourager with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we pray to God and confess our sins, Scripture tells us God is faithful and just. He will forgive us and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness so that we can have perfect peace with God. We can have perfect peace with His Son. And I don't want anyone to get the impression that what I'm saying here is we have to reach perfection before we can have that peace. That we have to reach perfection before we can gather with Christ. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I am trying to insist upon is that if the Spirit of God's Son is in us, then we must be growing into the image of Jesus Christ. Even if that growth is so gradual and so incremental that it's almost imperceptible, perhaps imperceptible to all but God, still, 
If the Spirit of God's Son is in our lives, it has to have an impact on how we live our lives. It has to. And I think that we as Christians have been guilty of, in times past, putting a basket over God's life. And it has compelled people like Gandhi to say things like, and I'm sure we've all heard of things like this before, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Because your Christians are so unlike your Christ. That is probably what hurts our credibility and our witness more than anything. And at the very least, I think we have to concede it's difficult to say how we can be gathering with Jesus if we are deliberately disobeying Him. And if Christ is not being formed in our hearts, we leave ourselves open to a host of destructive influences. In verse 24, Jesus says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person... It passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. And this is really one of the most fascinating things that Jesus says, and I'm not going to get into it in depth this morning because I don't understand much of it. It sounds like he was studying a textbook on demonology and he was quoting a lesson from it. But what we do know is here we have someone who has received the benefit of God's ministry. A demon has been cast out and then the person has swept his house furnished it, decorated it, put it in order. But if the Word of God isn't there, if Christ isn't there, it's all in vain. Except the Lord builds the house, the laborers who build it, build it in vain. And as he's saying these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said... Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Here we have a woman who probably, like many Jewish women, thought that the honor of the son was automatically conferred to the honor of the woman, just because you had a son that was a prophet. And we know that many Jews also relished in their ethnicity, that they were God's chosen people, descendants of Abraham according to the flesh. And what Jesus is doing here is He is subverting that way of thinking. He's saying that you're not blessed just because your son is a prophet and you're not blessed simply because you're a descendant of Abraham according to the flesh. But those who are God's people who are blessed are blessed because they hear the Word of God and keep it. And that is essentially the heart of what I've been trying to teach this morning as best I can. David said, I have hid your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And we need to keep that same word in our heart to guard it, to observe it, to do it. And Jesus says that when we do so, 
we are blessed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are who you are. And we thank you that you give us life, that you give us hope. And I pray that you will give us the grace to confess our sins to you and seek your mercy all the days of our life. I pray that you will unite this body of people in a bond of Christ-like love so that we can love each other, so that we can forgive each other, and so that we can bear with one another, and the world will know that we belong to you and that you have redeemed us by the power of your word. Bless us this day as we leave this place, and I hope and pray that you will give us minds to thank your thoughts and to judge your judgments, to remember you in everything we do, both big and small, to the glory of your kingdom. By the power of Jesus' name we pray, amen.